Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Producer of the month is Dave Gray. Thanks for your support, Dave. Now, one of our Patreon supporters who I should mention is Will Barzard. Now, if a cheap cocksucker like Will Barzard can afford to sponsor this podcast, then you can too. So, Fuck Will Barzar and fuck anyone who knows him. Go to patreon.com slash Gilbert Gottfried and support the podcast for the love of all that is holy. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. With my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. Our guest today is one of the busiest, funniest, and most popular character actors of the last 50 years. You know him from movies like Popeye, Robert Altman's A Wedding, Waiting for Guffman, A Mighty Wind, Runaway Bride, Sixteen Candles, and The Long-Suffering Dad and Breaking Away. Speaking of dads, he's played the on-screen father of everyone from Mia Farrow to Helen Hunt to Julia Roberts and the father-in-law of Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Other TV roles include Grace Under Fire, The Practice, My So-Called Life, Dream On, and Star Trek. Deep Space Nine, please welcome actor, writer, comedian, and cartoonist, the versatile and prolific Paul Dooley. I can't wait to meet this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds amazing. And I should tell the audience, if you're not familiar with uh, the name Paul Dooley, you know, just Google it because you're one of those people. They're going to immediately go, oh, that guy. <laughs> you know, I was once in a cab in New York and the cab driver said to me, I know you. 
I said, oh, who am I? He said, well, I don't know your name, but you've got a household face. <laughs> a household face. I love that. And that's the thing about character actors. You know what I mean? Well, Many we were t- people say, oh, I know that guy. You, you think they live in a building with you or you went to school with them when you first see them. Is in, that? No, I mean, with character, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You think you went to college with them or in the Army or something. Yeah, because well, you we, know you grew up with them. We were talking oh, about yeah. James, our mutual friend James Karen, who did the show, yeah. and he's one of those faces as well. Absolutely. We found out recently that we'd been in some movie together but not in the same scene. So I had no idea that you'd been in the movie. Uh, we just found it out recently. Now, I just found out you started as a stand-up comedian? Uh, yeah, the first real time I ever got a little recognized, I was doing very tiny parts and off-Broadway plays and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> but I always wanted to be a comic, but I didn't know it at the time, but I... I thought maybe I wanted to be a stand-up, and in my heart of hearts, I wanted to be an actor. Um, so, But I started out, and I was very lucky, because before I'd ever done anything, hardly ever in clubs, I'd done six or eight club dates in a very small time, and somehow I got on The Tonight Show with Jack Parr. Wow. And uh, I was doing a very uh, low-paying club date in Upper Saddle River, New Jersey, and, uh, and there was a group of accountants in the audience. It was a little meeting for them, and I, I kind of killed that night. And the next day, a guy called me, and he's the brother of one of the accountants, and he said, we should talk to you. I'm the manager of jo- uh, Jonathan Winters. And he had a real in with Jack Parr, because Parr loved Winters. He was on, you know, every other week. And so within two days, I was over there auditioning for Jack Parr, and they put me on. I did three shows. Wow. And what you- that was amazing, because every comic in town was trying to get that job. What was your stand-up like, Paul? Do you remember any of your jokes? I remember everything. <laughs> Not only of my jokes, but of everyone else. It's almost my curse. Uh, it was uh, it was more like um, you could compare it more to someone like Newhart, who uh, bits with beginning, middle, and end. They weren't like unrelated jokes. Uh, they weren't the typical, you know, series of. You might do two jokes on a topic, or one joke, or three, and then you move on to some other topic. They were more like little theater pieces where you create a character and play him. I wasn't Newhart in the sense that I was always tied to the telephone or in that very quiet way, but I would do uh, routines. For example, I had a routine. It was a whole Shakespearean play where I played all the parts. Then I did a thing where I translated uh, a fairy tale from the Czechoslovakian, and I would read the Czechoslovakian and then translate it, except that he knew nothing about the language. So they're all a series of bits. There was a a Western from the point of view of the Indian, and a lot of different routines like that. It was like they used to call them hunks, you know, sometimes. And I had six of them, and that made my 30 minutes when I first got started. And now, can we jump ahead to one of the strangest movies you were involved in? And that's when Robert Altman uh, did the big screen version of Popeye. Yeah. <laughs> Out. Uh, so where where did you film this? This was on the island of Malta in the middle of the Mediterranean. And and how long did this take to well, film? Well, it was going to be four months, but then they ran into some weather problems, and it was about six months. So it's half a year. So we had, if there were like 75 in the cast and crew, 
we're more like a hundred. We had fifty birthdays because it's half a year. <laughs> we got sick of cake. <laughs> it, was a, it was a birthday every week. Uh, yeah, we shot it there, and uh, we were fifty actors in it. And uh, uh, the great Bill Irwin was in it with not very much screen time. And uh, Linda Hunt was in it. A guy named Richard Libertini. Oh, your your, your old comedy partner, Libertini. Yeah, uh, I met him in Second City, and we were we've been friends ever since. In fact, uh, I, I actually got Libertini the job. Normally, an actor can't help an actor get a job, but Altman said to me, "Do you know somebody who?" tall and thin with a beard and can play comedy and do a dialect. And I said, I know the perfect guy. So uh, they got in, uh, <clears throat> they met and they got together and he did it and he was perfect for this character who was basically a Jewish uh, pushcart peddler, Giesel. No one ever used the word Jewish, but you know, he's Giesel. <laughs> anyway, he's a great comic actor. Uh, Libertini. Oh, and, oh, we and love him. That that's another one for the audience to just Richard Libertini. Google. You'll know him in a second. Oh, all of yeah. me, and of course uh, uh, the in-laws, where he's the uh, banana, the dictator of the Banana Republic. Yeah, and, who did and, senior Wences with his hands? Uh, just uh, unforgettable. And and it's I great. heard like the cast and crew are pretty much going nutty in Malta. It was well, like, it was very. It was a. It was a little. It's not even a tree on that thing. It's just a big rock. <laughs> and uh, there was so little to do. Thank God we had Robin Williams because he was our court jester. And since he can't, since he obsessively had to be on, we were happy to have somebody entertain us all the time. So between takes and all the downtime, thank God he was there. But we did get a little uh, squirrely and cabin fever. Uh, but it was great fun at the same time. There's so many talented people there. We once put on a variety show just to amuse ourselves. So we were our own audience, the cast and crew. If you, you went on stage and did a bit and came out and sat in the audience and it ran four hours because everybody had talent, you know. Bill Irwin had all kind of clown routines and uh, Libertini did routines and I did routines and Shelley Duvall played the guitar and sang songs. There's just tons of people, and Robin was the master of ceremony. And we should tell Robin our says I won't be in it. I'll just be the MC, except that he was twelve different MCs. <laughs> character once he's Ed Sullivan, then he's a Maltese comedian, and, but he he did plenty of stage time. We had a great time. It was a great company. It was a you know how you become a family in a movie. Well, uh, Alban. Uh, more than other directors and almost anybody I've ever met, he'll hire you for the entire run of the play if it's eight weeks or the run of the film instead of bringing you in for two weeks or one week and then sending you home. That way you don't feel a part of it because you're in and out. But he brings everybody at the beginning and they leave at the end and he says, if I want to put you in a scene, I want you to be here. So he's very loose and he may put you in scenes you were never in originally. We should we should just to clarify too for our listeners that you played Wimpy in the movie yeah. and and as a, as a, a cartoonist yourself I saw you uh, an interview with you online Paul and you were saying that you were you were oddly flattered to be asked to play a cartoon oh, character. Oh yeah, it was uh, I was actually a little scared because I thought uh, <clears throat> I'm not as roly poly as you'd think he would be, uh, and I heard really after the fact after the film that both Don DeLuise and Buddy Hackett had tried to get that part. Wow. But eventually, Alden told me, he says, I don't want people looking at the movie and saying, uh, there's Wimpy, oh, it's Buddy Hackett, or it's 
Don yeah. Luis, it, he thought it would take him out of the movie to um, have a person that had such a strong personality. But anyway, we, with the aid of make uh, aid of uh, makeup and, and uh, wardrobe, but I turned out to be a fairly decent looking wimpy. Now, can you say the famous wimpy hamburger <laughs> line for us, please? One of his key lines, and almost everybody remembers, is, "I would gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today." <laughs> they also said, "Come to my house for a duck dinner. You bring the duck." <laughs> He was essentially a con man who would do anything. In the movie, he sells he sells a baby for a bag of hamburgers <laughs> to, to Bluto. So that's what he was. He was a a con man. And and did did I hear you say a, a story where you and Robin Williams would turn off the, the the television? You would watch local television and then turn off the sound. Yeah. And improvise. And, uh, we would all do that. We watched it to laugh at them because they were sort of B-movies, but sent over from Sicily. The Maltese didn't have a film colony, but it was really awful, and um, we wouldn't understand it anyway. So there's a, a game they play in Second City and all the improv companies called dubbing. So we just turned it down, and we played the parts. And Robin, who was excellent at it, but Libertini and I from Second City, and uh, there were several others there who had been in Second City, and that, that's one of the ways in which we whiled away our time. You know, it was a great place that was great fun to do uh, that show, but there was nothing in that town to do at all. <laughs> <laughs> Gil- Gilbert knows I, that from being on the road. Yeah, I I yeah. just remembered dubbing was something that they started doing on Thick of the Night. Me, Richard uh-huh. Belzer, and the other people. Oh, you did it like that yeah, improv yeah. exercise? Didn't save the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, most stand-ups would be pretty good at it because they work on their feet and they develop their bits, you know, on the feet. Uh, and a guy like Belzer is very much, uh, you know, he can improvise. But uh, what happened with me, I did about three or four years of uh, stand-up and I... Uh, I was at the Playboy Clubs and and the um, Purple Onion and various places like that and the Village Vanguard in New York. Uh, But then I was offered a chance to be in the New York chapter of Second City with Alan Arkin and a number of people. Very early, the original company moved to New York for a while. And I immediately said, I'd rather look in the eyes of another actor and try to do sketches than I would to go out and face that audience in every little town. You know, because it's, as you know, it's a hard road. And and at what what do you remember of Alan Arkin? Because uh, that's one of our favorites here. Oh, yeah, he's wonderful. Uh, <clears throat> I saw him. They came to Broadway, uh, and it ran a while, and then they moved into the village down by in, uh, New York University, uh, <clears throat> where they ran uh, you know, about two or three years. Uh, I saw Arkin in the interview recently, and I also read this in a book he's written, that uh, at first he didn't, he didn't have a job, but they asked him to come out to Chicago. And he, didn't have, he said, I don't know how to improvise. He said, I was scared and upset the whole time that I wouldn't fit in. But eventually I, I discovered a character, and I played him all the time when I was being myself. I would be at this character. But then, of course, he's a fabulous dialectician. As anybody who've ever seen the Russians are coming. Oh, sure. Remember, he's a Russian uh, submarine commander. Or Poppy, or any of the parts Poppy, we're I mean, The guy is incredible. Yeah. Uh, I remember I, I go to an audition 
they wanted one guy to come in from New York just to cover them in case they uh, went on vacation or something. You didn't have to improvise. You just had to be a little bit uh, experienced with comedy. So I asked the director. I went down to this audition. I thought I'd read something. He says, I said, where's the script? He says, there's no script. You'll just go on tonight. Well, I never even knew so much about um, improv that I didn't know the first rule, which listen and agree. So I just went on and did a scene with Arkin, and it worked out well, probably because of Arkin. So they hired me, and uh, I sort of learned improv on the job as we went along. I just learned it, you know, the same way they did. Everybody started from nothing, and they picked up on it. And the more you do it, the, the better you get at it. But I worked with them often, and uh, it was a great experience. And, and Libertini Ar- came into that company at some point. Libertini. Oh, funny people. And Ark and I worked with in Bad Medicine. Oh, that's right. <clears throat> Gilbert was in a film uh, with him. Another big hit. <laughs> <laughs> who who was in the uh, who was in Second City uh, in addition to you and, and Libertini and Ark and? Uh, well, that- the original company included Severin Darden, who's oh yeah, gone, who's gone now, but he was he's a legend in Second City, uh, and a woman named Mina Kolb, who was one of the earliest women, and um, Paul Sand, who's a mime. It was also in Story Theater on Broadway. We were just talking about Paul Sand the other night with Louis Black. Paul Bl- Louis studied Black. With Mar- he studied with Marceau, uh, Marcel Marceau. Wow. And he's a wonderful, wonderful mime. And at some point, Joan Rivers came in briefly in our show in New York. And uh, Barbara Harris, who became well-known on Broadway, sure. some movies. Barbara did uh, On a Clear Day on Broadway, played the lead. And uh, she did a film with Hitchcock, and she did... Uh, uh, frantic, not not frantic Friday, but the mother and the daughter switch roles. Oh, the Freaky time. Friday. Yeah, yeah. And she had a small uh, early film career around that time. I guess it was in the sixties, sixties uh, and early seventies. Now, this wasn't the Compass Players, right, uh, uh, Paul? Because the, uh, the, the the a group called the Playwrights became the Compass, and the Compass became Second City. Gotcha. But I was never in the Chicago company. I just joined. The, these original people when they came to New York, and I kind of learned from them. Wasn't Robert Klein also around then? Robert Klein was not in the New York company, but he did Second City Chicago. I see, I see. As everybody did, Jack Burns and Avery Schreiber, and a number of people became actual comics in their own right. More of them became actors, and a lot of them became writers in California, because there's not a whole lot of parts out here, you know, not always parts for everybody. You know, the, the average thing in New York, uh, Chicago is uh, they do uh, something like two, three years, and then they get restless and they want to be in the big time and they come to L.A., but their wonderful, brilliant talents aren't necessarily used in in films and television always. Although it's getting better now. The, the people Judd Apatow works with uh, often uh, have Second City backgrounds or great improv backgrounds. But I know tons of people who now have come to California and uh, looking for work and not getting it, they went into writing. A lot of them write for sitcoms. Mm-hmm. And and you said when growing up, you are what got you interested in show business was your love of uh, radio comedians. Yeah. It was the TV of its day. I listened to Jack Benny and Fred Allen and Jimmy Durante had a show, Red Skelton and Bob Hope, they all had shows. And uh, as I'm writing currently, I've been almost finished with my writing my one-man show, I say to them, I began to look at the feel these comics were my friends. You know, they were my imaginary friends. 
And somehow I thought they're telling the jokes just for me. I got very identified with them, you know. Mm-hmm. And I never thought I could do it, but I, uh, but I looked up to them. And I somehow had this facility, as some people do for baseball statistics. Uh, I know almost every joke I ever heard, especially if it was funny. I mean, I've heard a lot of jokes I've forgotten. But I remember routines and best jokes of thousands of comics, especially from the old days. You know, even Fat, fat Jack Leonard and you know, all kind of people. How about Sam Levinson? I love Sam Levinson. Yeah, us too. Great. Us too. You're, you're like Gilbert in that way. He's kind of a joke archivist. You, you tell a lot of old jokes. Oh, yeah. I, I remember just about every joke I've heard. You're both that way. And, you know, I heard you talk about the quality of writing uh, on, on those radio shows, Paul. They were great people. Yeah. Neil Simon, for Even one. Even before uh, Gelbart, for example, and mm-hmm. Neil Simon uh, <clears throat> went over to television, uh, they wrote for radio. Uh, uh, Danny Simon worked on Duffy's Tavern, one of the earliest really, really, really funny shows. They didn't have a comedian per se. It was just a group of performers. But it was really a, a really hot writing staff. He had Abe Burroughs as the head writer. Danny Simon brought his younger brother, Neil, on. Gelbart was there. Gelbart wrote for radio out on the West Coast as well. And uh, some of the people who eventually ended up at Sid Caesar's stable had worked in radio. But you can't, if you can't see the people, it all has to be in the words. Yes, they got it down to a science, man. It was like two-liners, you know, one set up, one payoff. There's a friend of mine, a guy named Herb Sargent, who's a name you might yeah, know. know the original, is, original, yeah. original SNL head writer was writing for some of those shows, Fred Allen. Yes, yeah, Sid Caesar oh, yeah. had a, a, an insane uh, staff of writers. Oh, yeah. I, I Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner. Mel Tolkien. Yeah. Right. Woody Allen. Right. All those people. And Gelbart. So really, yeah. this, was, this was what inspired you to, to leave West Virginia and, and pile into a car with $50 in your pocket, Paul, and head to New York City? Is that kind of what yeah. happened? That's right. Although, because what I studied in college wasn't stand-up or anything, although I did a little of it around there. A friend of mine was Don Knotts, who, who, uh, was, in that, uh, who was born in that city, and he was a senior when I was a freshman. And uh, I liked him a lot, and he was always hilarious. Uh, but I thought, because I was studying uh, acting in classes, that if I went to New York, I'd be lucky if I was an actor, never thinking I could become uh, <clears throat> a comic. The thing about me was I always thought I looked straighter than the average comic. Like there's often a, a look about them, you know, especially in the old age, you were the tall and thin or short and fat or with freckles or red hair or something about you, which is a little offbeat, which is good for the comedian. And I looked like the guy next door. So the person I looked up to most because I thought it could be like him was Carl Reiner. And then later on, uh, <clears throat> Harvey Corman, because you get to be in the thick of the sketch and in the middle of it working with comics, but you are really the straight man. But you can often be a very funny straight man. Now, now you worked with Carl Reiner. Yeah. Carl directed a show once, which was a pilot with Peter Ustinov as a star. It was going to be a variety show. And myself and uh, Patchett and Tarsus were comics in those days. Wow. Also writers. <laughs> and they were on the show, and they wrote some sketches. And uh, that's when I first uh, met Carl. Then later, unbeknownst to me, Carl Reiner had recommend, recommended me to the Children's Television Workshop uh, to be one of the writers. And so I created this, uh, became the head writer for the Electric Company. And uh, 
I ran into Carl 10 years later. I says, I'm told you recommended me for this. He said, maybe. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> we had Billy Purcell. What happened was when we were rehearsing sketches for that Ustinov show, naturally when you rehearse a sketch, uh, it's open to a little bit of throw some lines in. So I would throw a line in or make a suggestion, and he thought I had the, the kind of head for it. So he thought I could be a writer just because I you know, invented some lines in the rehearsals. But he never talked to me about it. But it was a great job. I did it for a year. You created Morgan Freeman's character. That's right. Easy Reader. Easy Reader. He was a, a junkie for words. And uh, they told me a second at the Children's Television Workshop that the count is their guy for numbers, and maybe we could have something like him for words. So I said, I figured Easy Reader would be like Easy Writer, and he would, uh, he would love words. He would read the labels on people's clothing or their the logo on their sneakers, and he would read the once they gave him a pencil to sign a contract to cut down on the reading, and he looked at it and said, Ticonderoga number two. <laughs> <laughs> he used to read people's watches. Right. And what he used about- to find anything I could in nature in the world where he could read. And I- once I had them take Easy Reader out to the park, was they were always pretending to break him of the habit of too much reading just for comic value. I took him out in the park and said, forget everything <laughs> printed and forget everything in books and forget all this relaxed at the park. Look at the sky, look at the clouds. He takes a beat and he says, uh, good year. <laughs> is it he show found business- a way to read in the sky. Show business is great, Paul. The, the, uh, the dad from Breaking Away and 16 Candles turns out to be the creator of Morgan Freeman's character on The Electric Company. Well, that's my calling card. Every time I go into a room with a new director, producer, or star, even for some meeting or an audition, the first thing they say is they love that movie. Because every film student and every young actor sees that, knows that movie. And it's also ubiquitous. It's always on television somewhere. Breaking away, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> so that's my calling card. From that point, from that uh, that film on, I began to get a lot more offers than I end up playing all these fathers, you know. Some of them straight, some of them comic, but uh, you, you take whatever comes along. Sure. Now, because the father in uh, in Seasoning Candles was fairly straight, a little comic in the beginning, but uh, but he had a big scene where it's a kind of a dramatic, uh, heart-rending scene with Molly Ringwald. And, I just watched it today. Yeah, it's a nice scene. One of my wife's they, favorite movies. There were a lot of great character actors in Sixteen Candles. I mean, Edward Andrews. Oh, Edward Andrews. Yeah. yeah. Oh, another guy everyone would recognize. Uh, Max Showalter is his sure. name. Yes. Sure. Who I remember. And from... a woman named Carol. I think Carol Cook was her name. Carol Cook. Yes. Yeah. You work with the Max Showalter? grandmother was a, wood, a woman named, uh, I, I really forget her name, but her name was Bertie. Her real name was Bertie something, and she had been in vaudeville because she was already 70 or something. Oh, and okay. she was funny as hell. Yeah. Now, I, I remember Ma- Max Showalter when he was, I think, originally called Casey Adams. Well, his I name think. was Showalter, and when he went to Hollywood, naturally, they gave him a seven-year contract. They wanted to change his name because they thought Showalter was just probably based on a Jewish name somewhere. <laughs> he became Casey Affleck. <laughs> isn't, isn't Max Showalter the dad in that famous Twilight Zone episode with Billy Mooney where he wishes, him, he, he wishes everybody into the cornfield? 
Do I, I, have I may have not seen that one, but it's yeah. very possible. Yeah. He was in Hollywood quite I early. Think he's the, is he the priest in 10? Blake Edwards 10? I, I remember seeing him, and, and I think the earliest horror movie I remember... The Indestructible Man, uh-huh. starring, of course, Lon Chaney Jr. <laughs> Is that another Bird Eye Gordon classic? Yes. <laughs> I think I got the right actor. I think Max Showalter's in 10. Yeah, he had Moore. those crazy eyes. Right, he used right. to use his eyes a lot. In films, he used to play the part that Tony Randall would play later, which is the friend of the hero. Uh, I see. <laughs> he would sometimes do that as well. I think when Hollywood finally said, okay, no more studio system, now you're on your own. I think he went back to the theater and uh, changed his name back to his original name. But he was a nice guy. And, you know, my, my buddy on that film was Getty Watanabe. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. He played Long Dong Duck or whatever. Oh, yes, you bet. <laughs> yeah, he's terrific. He was funny as hell. Tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Prove it! Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, did you ever work with or meet any of your old radio favorite stars? I, I, uh, well, uh, Phil Silvers, I didn't hear him much on radio, but I did the Bilko show once, and a couple of times I did radio commercials with Silver. And he was a great comic, a really great sketch comic. And he had come from burlesque. Um, no, I don't think I've met any of those old timers. Uh, first of all, I lived in New York for 30 years and if I'd been out here, I might've met a person like, uh, Jack Benny. I know that Harry Shearer was on Jack Benny's show as a child. Oh yeah. And leave it so to Beaver. If I was out here and I was kind of in the mix of, uh, comedy people, I probably would have maybe done something like that, but I, I mostly didn't meet those guys. Well, take I didn't a- know a lot of comics actually. Take, I just know a lot of improvisers. Take us back a little, Paul. You come, you come to New York. You've got fifty bucks in your pocket. And what, what's the first thing you did when you weren't? Didn't you work as a clown for a while? Isn't that where your 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 stage name came from? That's right. I used I did him in college a few times, and I thought the name Dooley sounded like a a clowny name. And uh, I thought the most beautiful name in the world for a comedy guy was Mickey Rooney. Both of them ended in Y. It's two diminutives. And you got I a K. Not like a guy with the name of Mickey Rooney, <laughs> right? Now so I... it's a really a cousin of Mickey Rooney's name. Because you were Paul, and, uh, you were born uh, Paul when Brown. I got to New York, there was a guy with my name uh, who was in uh, Equity, and I couldn't join Equity because of that, so I had to change anyway. I see. Now, wasn't Mickey Rooney like the name of a character that he was playing at one point? I'll have to research that. Mickey Rooney wasn't his real name. Uh, no, his name is Joe Yule Jr. Uh huh. Yeah, I think that was Y U L E. He was his father. 
who was a, a vaudevillian. I don't know if he was a comedian. I think he was. He appeared in a very early movie in the probably the late 30s, early 40s, where he played Jiggs from Maggie and Jiggs, because he was an Irishman and he had red hair. And a long, long ago comic strip was Maggie and Jiggs, and he played this in a movie once. But his son was Joe Yule Jr., and they changed his name. Yeah, I think he played a character. I never knew that. Named Mickey Rooney. I have a wonderful sepia-toned picture of him. He's about five years old or six. He's wearing a derby with the top caved in and short pants. I forget. uh, Oh, they called him Mickey McGuire. That was the first. When he was Joe Yule Jr., they made him do shorts, and he was Mickey McGuire. And then he became more of a, a mainstream actor, and they changed his name to Mickey Rooney. But pound for pound, that was a that was a talented son of a gun, didn't he? He I, was. I, I remember. Some of his best movies. He went a little crazy at the end, but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he didn't know what city he was in sometimes at the end, but... Gilbert and I, I talk about the performance in Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is so so wild and over the top. Talk about over the top. Yeah. <laughs> talk yeah. about the anti-defamation league. <laughs> Absolutely. Look at Buck Keith. Yeah, which Jer- Jerry Lewis was still doing in the 80s. I, I remember in I they one time interviewed Sammy Davis Jr. and said, how does he feel about being called the greatest entertainer? And... Sammy Davis thought Mickey Rooney was the greatest entertainer of all time. Well, Mickey could sing and he could act and he could dance. It's amazing. Good comedy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, he used to do impressions, too, when he was really young and he would go to parties and things. I've seen him do it at interviews. He imitated Lionel Barrymore, among other things. Wow. But <laughs> Your father was a failure, and you are a failure, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, Paul. A little Mr. Potter. Now, you've met the Three Stooges? No, no, no. He no, had a story didn't. about you the Three Stooges. You have a story Stooges. about the Three Stooges. I'm on my street in Clybourne Street in uh, in, uh, in, in uh, Toluca Lake in Burbank. Yes. The guys, I'm on the sidewalk, somebody watering the lawn or something. The guy says, who owns that house there? I said, that's my house. He said, the Three Stooges made a film there. So he says, I'm the fan club president of the Three Stooges. Uh, we're in Philadelphia. I'm just at her. I look for locations where they worked. So then he, uh, when he went back to Philadelphia, he sent me pictures of them coming down the street in little golf carts. But no, it was more like a motor scooter. And they were pulling a wagon. There were Three Stooges and three different um, motor scooters. And they're pulling a little wooden wagon with a dog sitting in it. And you see him turn into the driveway of my house. And I I took these pictures and put them in a, a triptych, you know, a, a frame thing with three pictures. I have them in my house. <laughs> <laughs> but I certainly never met them. But they all lived in Toluca Lake over here. Gilbert's a huge Stooge fan. Uh, no, I wasn't. No, I said Gilbert is. <laughs> oh, Gilbert is. Speaking, <laughs> speaking of comedy... Go ahead, Paul. The thing is, I, once you've seen Keaton and Chaplin, you know. Oh, of course. <laughs> they're sort of not in the same league, but there's certain funny things about them. Certainly Curly was funny. We love Curly. What, what about that picture on your website? Is that you dressed as Chaplin? Oh, uh, when, I was, when, I first, when I first saw Keaton and Chaplin when I was 15 in high school, a friend of mine whose family was wealthy, we were, I was very poor, but he had a big collection of these silent movies, 
uh, and he showed it to me, and I, it changed my life. I wanted to be an actor, from, not a cartoonist, but from that point on, I just wanted to be. Trouble is, I wanted to be a silent movie actor, but they weren't doing them anymore. Uh, so uh, the arc of the, my Buster Keaton infatuation is that 40 years after my high school, I did a commercial with them. So I actually met the guy. Oh, wow. Tell us about that. Well, it was for Ford Econoline Vans, and uh, I tracked it down recently, and I have a copy of the commercial. But among the Keystone cops who were chasing Buster in the commercial was Barney Martin from Seinfeld. Sure. And uh, Avery Schreiber. The other four were unknowns to me. But uh, talk about a thrill to meet someone like him. Of course. Now, was Buster Keaton, was he bitter toward the end? No, he was never bitter. He was... Uh, uh, he was uh, okay with everything. He was a very nice guy, and he should have been bitter. I'd have been bitter if I were him. His, uh, his brother-in-law, one of the Skink brothers, rhymes with skunk, sold him out and moved him over to MGM, so now they owned him, and sound was there, and they wouldn't let him make any more silence, and they tried to use him in sound pictures, but it never quite worked. But uh, he went to France. He worked in the French circus for a while. And he did all kind of things, and he did that tour of um, a Mer a Merton of the Movies with uh, Jim Caron. Uh, but he did a lot of things. He did different commercials for Alka-Seltzer. There was a time where he was kind of, uh, it's another way he can make money. I was on the Sullivan Show one time doing a sketch, and uh, he was on the bill, so I got to say hello to him then. Uh, he would just appear wherever he could. But... Uh, the sad thing to me was he was making thousands and thousands of dollars in pre-tax days when he had his own studio. And as soon as sound came in, within two years or so, he was he was working as a gag writer for Red Skelton for his movies. Skelton did a remake of The General, which was where he played a spy, or he worked between the North and the South. And Buster invented a lot of the physical gags for that. And I know he was making seven fifty a week writing for Red Skelton, which is pretty much a come down. You don't picture Chaplin writing for anybody else. No. I, I think, didn't he also write for Harpo? I think. I heard and, that he did that, yes. Yeah. Although I don't think Harpo needed much, because he's a natural. You know, he's so inventive, and he already had that kind of invention when he, uh, by the time they got to uh, making movies. But, uh, yeah, I did hear that, and it would make sense. Oh, especially when they brought them over from another studio, and uh, Irving Thalberg was their mentor at MGM, because uh, MGM had some dealings with uh, uh, with Keaton, because that's where he worked for Red Skelton. So he probably was put on on salary to uh, think of physical gags for Harpo, because maybe movie after movie after movie, Harpo was running out of you know, sure, gags. sure. And I think this was when the Marx Brothers were on their decline, like with. Go west. Well, uh, what didn't yeah, they? Well, yeah, didn't they only make they the got older? Some of the movies weren't so hot. The no. one with Marilyn Monroe wasn't very good. Love Happy. Oh yeah, that and was. Go west wasn't very good. Yeah. I think they passed their time. A lot of comedy people go past their time. You, you know, it's. Uh, I mean, look at the tragedy of Caesar, who was glorious in his heyday. Sure. But they just declined, and even Gleason declined. 
they were never as good as they were when they were on television. I, uh, interestingly uh, enough, Paul, I think you're our fourth guest on the show to have worked with Buster Keaton. Because we had <laughs> J- James Karen, uh Chuck McCann was on the show, and uh, Frankie Avalon. Wow. Because uh, at the end, Buster was uh, in, the, in some of the beach pictures. I was in, in love with these silent movies, and once I did a commercial with Chuck McCann, and and uh, it was done in the style of a silent movie, and 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 the woman in it was uh, uh, Wicked Witch of the West. What's her name? Margaret, Margaret Hamilton. Margaret Hamilton was in it, and uh, McCann still has a copy of it, and he keeps promising me that he'll give me a copy. <laughs> but they, we'll get on him about that. In a while. We'll get on him about that. But he he's kind of a guy who loves the old timey stuff too. Oh yeah, in fact, he did a film with uh, Arkin, which was uh, Heart is Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Yeah, we love that picture. And he played a guy who was like a mental type guy, and Alan did the whole thing in mime because he was a mute. That was the one I just saw it a week ago. Yeah, it's he, a sweet film. Yeah, he's a he's a funny guy. He's really good. And, and I used what? to see him on a he had a kids show in New York. Sure. And he put pieces of round cardboard over his eyes on an elastic <laughs> and played little Annie. Little Orphan Annie. Oh, and Dick Tracy. Pounds. Yeah, and Dick Tracy, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he always dressed up as Oliver Hardy. Oh, yeah. And he does those voices great. Well, do Stan and Ollie. That movie he, do, he did, The Projectionist, too, yeah, is su- very early in su- his career. such an homage to the, the silent film era. Did Buster Keaton, do you know how he felt about uh, Charlie Chaplin? Because they always seemed to throw those two together. And make them look like. Yeah. Well, I was glad that Chaplin um, used him in Limelight. It's a very brief uh, scene, but he he almost steals the show. Uh, I hear that there was much more footage of him doing that music hall turn with Chaplin on Limelight, which got cut as as they were editing the film and got trimmed down a bit, because he's hilarious. That guy. Uh, I don't know that they were friends, but of course I'm sure they respected each other, and I'm sure they met, they'd meet on social occasions out here. But I don't know much, very much about uh, what they thought of each other. It would be impossible for Chaplin not to see his talent, or of oh, course, oh, so so different comics. I mean, when people compare them, and there's there's such apples and oranges, the two of them, such different performers. It's so weird because it's like uh, with film snobs, they always make it like you have to pick one or the other. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. chocolate and vanilla. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, it's like, like picking a greatest rock and roll singer and leaving out all the others. Correct. Yeah, it's like if you like Buster Keaton, you're supposed to hate Charlie Chaplin. No, I, I love them both. But I'll tell you one thing about Keaton, which I talk, I'm talk. i going to talk a lot about in this show I'm writing, uh, is that uh, to me at least, I knew Chaplin was skillful, and I knew Buster was skillful. I knew that they were amazing acrobats. I knew that they had great comedy timing. I knew all these things, but somehow I felt I knew Buster Keaton's persona when I watched him. It felt like an everyman to me. When I watched Chaplin, I although admired him, even idolized his talents. I thought, the life is never going to knock this guy down. He's too smart. He's smarter than anybody else in the movie. He's smarter than me. He's smarter than the whole audience. <laughs> so there was a kind of a cleverness about him, which was... Uh, uh, putting a barrier between me and him. Although he had scenes in City Lights where he w- was putting the flower up to his mouth when he was, sees the girl he used to be in love with. He has moments of, of touchingness, but 
Buster Keaton never seemed to be a comedian. He always seemed like he was a real guy, and these things were happening to him. Yeah. You know, but Chaplin could dance, move like a dancer. He could juggle. He could. He was so skillful with everything. He played women. Uh, it's just that Buster always spoke to me. I felt that's. A, I feel like I know him. And he also was a very much an underplayed guy. In other words, Chaplin used his face liberally to show different comic modes, but Buster could say it all without using his face. It was just his body, and he was. I'm a kind of a minimalist actor. I like to do less rather than more. And I found that Buster is working in slapstick, but he seems very, very real and very subtle, you know. Some of his takes are very tiny. But uh, I just admire his style. And in my show, I talk about how my father, the end of my show, uh, I've been obsessed with it for the last six months, although I've been planning it for 10 years. Because friends are always saying, you should do a book, you should do a one-man show. I say at the end of my thing, my, uh, um, I went to the Buster Keaton Film Festival in Kansas with Jim Karen a couple of years ago. And uh, I say that I realized uh, when I was going to speak to the people in Kansas, why is they like Buster so much? Everyone likes Buster. Everyone there is a fan. So what is it about me and about him that is so special? Then I said, I never saw my father smile, and the same with Buster. My father was a man of few words, just like Buster. And I realized that Buster was kind of like a role model for me. He was like a surrogate dad, you know, the dad I kind of never had who could also make me laugh, you know. So that's kind of a thing that is in my head about Keaton. That's sweet. Is that going to be part of the show, Paul? Yeah, that's, I, I talk about him a lot, and I show some of his, some short clips of his. And speaking of your dad, you didn't didn't I read that you you kind of uh, when you got the script for Breaking Away, the late Steve Tesich, of course, didn't you see some? Did, dad, yeah. yeah, didn't you see some of your dad in the character? Oh yeah, I was thinking of him all the time. In my in my show, I have a very touching thing, I believe, where it says, "There's a scene in the movie where Dennis Christopher comes to me. He lost the race. He's crying. Comes to his father for." Uh, he's disillusioned. He comes to me for comfort, but I'm used to having this kind of snippy uh, reality with him. I'm always criticizing him in some odd way, but because he's broken down, I put my arms around him, although it, it, it uh, said in the script he doesn't quite know how to hug his son. So I do reluctantly try to hug a little bit. And what I'm saying in my show is, uh, at that moment I thought, if I'm playing my father and feeling like my father, who is this I'm hugging? Well, that's got to be me. So I was finally giving myself the hug that I never got from my real father. Wow. I think it's going to be a little touching moment. Yeah. Then I show a short film clip of that scene. It is touching. It's one of the nice things about being an actor, isn't it? That yeah. you, you kind of get to recreate life moments. I don't know why I became a minimalist, but my father was very closed off and unemotional. and I'm sure I, I bonded on him for some time. But I, even in my dramatic work, I try to be as, as, as subtle as possible. You know, I like people like, uh, I like Newhart's comedy because he's subtle and not aggressive. And I like, uh, oh, someone like um, Anthony Hopkins, who never does too much. He's always doing just enough. Even when he played Hannibal Lecter, he underplayed it. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, he did. So I just, for some reason, turned out to be a, a guy who likes it less is more. Now, I I heard you're not really big on, like, say, like the method actors and everything. You don't prepare 
Well, that, I, mm. I'm not like them. I, it's not that I don't look up yeah, to them. Yes. I mean, obviously, if you like Brando and Pacino and all those people, you have to know there's something to it. It's just somehow not my system, and I never studied that. When I went to New York, I had no money, so most actors were finding a way to scrape a few dollars together from a part-time job or in a cab ride or something and, and study. But for some reason, I didn't have enough money for a long time. Uh, it was hand-to-mouth for several years. And then when I started working, I, I said, well, maybe I don't need classes. Maybe I know how to act. And so I just never got around to it, but I probably would have been good for me if I had. I just work in a very different way. You know, I can be off stage talking to someone and they say, okay, action. And I can, I don't know how, but in some way something clicks in my head and I start acting the character without, you know, going in the corner and thinking about it or spending the whole day or the whole shoot trying to be in the character. First of all, in the movies, most characters are already you. They're hiring you because the characters <laughs> right. they see you do constantly. Yeah. But uh, I admire people who have a, a system that allows them to do what they do. I mean, especially if a guy like Pacino can do all that, then obviously it's a great system for him. And you worked with Pacino. And I don't know what his training was, but Seymour Hoffman, of course, is fantastic. You worked with both those guys. Can yeah, you, it's great. Can tell us a little about your experience with them. Well, first with Al Pacino. Well, uh, as you know, because you've been in films, uh, often at the end of a scene, the star goes to his trailer. And, you know, generally speaking, you're not, you're kind of discouraged from going and hanging out in their trailer with them because they want to be with themselves, you know. So even though I was Julia Roberts' father, I wasn't necessarily close because we did our scenes together and we both went off to our trailers. And, uh, so I chatted with him a few times, and once I was having a conversation with two or three other actors on the, the movie Insomnia, and he passed by, and we were talking about Popeye, because a couple of those guys liked that movie. And he stopped and said, one of my favorite films, so I love the guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Robin... <laughs> because it's perceived, it's kind of perceived as a, a flop or a mixed-up movie. Right. So I have about six books on Altman, and one of the most recent ones I read that it... Uh, that it did make its money back and it uh, made $50 million over time. And that was in 1980. So that's a lot of money. So out of everything, so it, wasn't, it wasn't a failure financially, but critically it didn't do that great. Mm -hmm. Out of everything that Al Pacino has done, his biggest accomplishment was he liked the movie <laughs> you were in. <laughs> <laughs> well, Robin was there too, wasn't he? Because he was in insomnia. Yeah. Robin was the bad guy. Right. That's right. But I like that he picture. He came in one day, and the next day I left, so I didn't spend a lot of time with him. But he, Robin, for all the stand-ups we know, became a, an amazing film actor. I mean, it wasn't like he's getting by in films. He was really good. I mean, look at Mrs. Doubtfire. Sure. I mean, look at all the stuff he oh, did. He good, was a wonderful Goodwill Hunting and the Birdcage. So many good performances. Oh, yeah, it's great. And, and another actor you worked with, who's a favorite of Frank and, and I, is the uh, wonderful John Carradine. Oh, well, I never worked with John Carradine, but I had a story about him. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know John uh, see, Carradine? I don't know. Weren't you, in a, weren't you in a horror film with John Carradine? No, my, my life was a horror film, but I never... <laughs> I'll tell you, all I know about John Carradine got bad info. I was on the Merv Griffin show one night, and he was on... And three of his sons were there, Keith and Robert and whoever. And 
Merge said to him, is it true you've made more movies than anybody who ever made movies? He says, no, there's one other actor who made more movies than me. I've made 400. (laughs) (laughs) Incredible. And his name was Wallace, but I forget his last name, but he's a very well-known actor. Henry Wallace? One of those actors who get two movies a week when you're playing small parts. I I keep forgetting his name, Wallace somebody. You, when you look at Carradine's IMDb page uh, online, and it's incredible. And you could spend hours scrolling through it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, imagine yeah. having the time to make 400 films. I mean, he lived, well, a, he way, lived a long time. The way time. it worked, really, was when you were under contract to Louis V. Mayer, let's say, at MGM, uh, he didn't want to pay you for a week. Usually those contracts are 750 a week, even for Clark Gable in the beginning. They, they'd pay him 750 a week and loan him out for 5000 you know, because in in the weeks between when they were working, they still paid them. So his idea, Louis B. Mayer and all the other moguls, was, well, if you're getting a check, you're going to be working. So Betty Davis and Clark Gable would go from movie to movie to movie, and they would do their wardrobe fittings in the last week of the current movie, and by the next Monday they could start on the new movie. They didn't have any time off because he wanted them working like they were slaves. There was no sag in the very beginning. They'd work 12, 14, 15 hours a day, then have to come back at 6 in the morning, 7 in the morning. But uh, Carradine said in that interview with Merv Griffin, he said, I would do one day in a movie, and the next day I'd just cross the alley and go to another studio with another costume and another makeup, and I'd do, I'd do one scene for them. And he said, I could do two, three movies a week. Incredible. So he was there for years and years. <laughs> yeah. He would make a lot of movies. That explains it. I remember Cagney said in his book, working with Bogart, and Bogart looked totally exhausted, and he was like doing two other movies while he was doing that movie with Cagney. Yeah, multitasking. Yeah, because they they say, well, you don't have any scenes for this week, so go be that movie. Go in that movie. (laughs) They worked it out. Incredible. Amazing. Still, I wish I, I kind of wish I was a contract player back in the 30s and 40s. That's another time I was born too late to be a part of. Yeah, we, we, if knowing you had a seven-year contract and you'd be working at something for seven years, it's, thrill, it's thrilling. James, and there's James, always a chance of having an outstanding performance, so maybe you'll move up in the world. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. James Karen, uh, I remember talking to him, and he said he would talk to these character actors who would always say how horrible it would be to be a contract player and how much work they had to do. And he said he that was his dream in life. Yeah, well, there's something true about actors. If you want an actor to be un, unhappy, get him a successful series. Because after the eighth episode, he wants to get out of his contract to be in the movies. Or after <laughs> the second season. There's nothing that makes actors more discontent than a hit. Because they think they should move on. I've heard many of them complain, I have another year of this damn thing. You know, well, pretend you're sick or something. Well, I've heard you say that about yourself, Paul, that you get bored playing the same character more than once. Well, I don't like long runs, although I did like The Odd Couple because every line was practically a laugh. That was such a well-written show. But uh, I'm not crazy about long runs, but uh, I don't mind doing two or three months on something. Now, tell us about The Odd Couple. Uh, Well, uh, um, Nichols had seen me at Second City in New York. Mike Nichols. Uh, Mike Nichols, yeah. And uh, so there were auditions. 
and I went to read. And because they, for it's a poker player auditioning for, there are four of them. But because their lines are so far apart, like a line on each page, you can't. There's not a good scene, so they have you read Felix and Oscar. So I read for um, I read for Felix, and uh, I got the job. It was a little odd because I left the theater, went out the stage door, and down the alley. This never happens. But the stage manager ran after me and says, "They want you to do it. They, you got the job." Usually, you call your agent later, and that's how it happens. But uh, Mike had liked me, I guess, in what stuff I did at, uh, at Second City. But I became arts understudy. But what I didn't know and what wasn't generally known is that arts an alcoholic during that time. And out of town for six weeks, he, he never missed a performance. But after we opened and we were a big hit, he started missing, and I was his understudy. And so I would go on uh, many, many, many times. I must have gone on 12 or 15 times. Then one day he didn't show up, and then the next day he didn't show up, and the next day he didn't show up. And we found out he had put himself into rehab, into what they called then a sanitarium, to dry out. We, we, should, we should just remind our listeners who don't know, this is Art Carney we're talking about, who was yeah, the or, yeah. original Felix Unger on Broadway. Oh, yeah, yeah. Opposite Mathau. Jack Lemon played later. Right. Art, uh, Art Carney. And he was going through a divorce at the time, and he'd been married for 20 or 30 years, and he had kids, and he was very unhappy around that time. He might have been a little unhappy that uh, Oscar uh, uh, Matthau won the Oscar. I mean, he won the Tony, and they were both equally funny, but uh, it happens that Matthau won the Tony that year, and Art didn't. They canceled each other out, sort of. Uh, but uh, I took over and played Felix for quite a while. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And do you have Great memories? Show. Do you have memories of working with Matthau? Well, Matt, I was a little bit of a bad boy on stage. He would play <laughs> pranks, you know. <laughs> Sometimes an actor will uh, he'll turn to you uh, in a play. I mean, an actor is not disciplined. I mean, we all do it, especially when you're starting out or you're getting tired of a role. On a laugh, which is, you know, only about five seconds, you'll say, that went well. Or, you know, really, what's, what's happening here? <laughs> it's just a little aside you say to the other actors sometimes. Or, uh, or if they don't react, they say, "Are they dead?" You know. <laughs> but uh, Walter would talk to us under the laughs, but he also talked to you while you were delivering your lines. That's <laughs> helpful. <laughs> Occasionally, <laughs> and he would change. He would change the blocking around, and he would. Uh, he, he was capable of uh, milking the audience. You know, when you get a big laugh, usually you let it go and move on to the next scene because that's better for the play. But at times he would just milk the laugh by, by mugging or just looking at the audience funny, saying, give me more. <laughs> but I tell you one thing, he was born to play that part. He was just absolutely perfect for oh, it. Oh, he's brilliant. Gilbert, you do a little Walter Matthau. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's the 10th floor, not the 11th Felix. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he break the fourth wall and, and have a little bit of a problem, an ongoing problem with Nichols? Uh, yes, Paul? he broke the fourth wall only once in the whole play. And out of ten, Nichols said to him, uh, that's not a good idea, Walter, because sure, you get a big laugh when you break the fourth wall, but then we lose them for the next five minutes because you've broken the contract with them that there is a fourth wall. Now, are they to believe there's still a fourth wall, or now everyone's going to talk to them? So it's either a style that you talk to them, or it's not in a play. Sure. These comedy people always face the audience. 
but uh, he gave Walter the same notes for six weeks out of town. Don't do that. And he always did it. <laughs> the line was, and the script says, Oscar looks to heaven and says, why doesn't he hear me? I know I'm talking. I recognize oh, sure. the voice. And every, every night he looked at somebody in the front row and said that. And uh, after giving him this note endlessly, the note kept getting smaller and smaller because he knew he wasn't going to win. So by the time we were arriving in New York, he would say to Walter, he'd just say, oh, and Walter? Yeah, well, you know. So it was a <laughs> reminder. But he never, ever did it the right way. Mm-hmm. He did it the way he wanted to do it. <laughs> For six months, I lived alone in this apartment. I wish I, to... have a, <laughs> I have a theory about his acting. Yes. When he was a teenager, he worked in the Yiddish theater, the Mathau, when he was very, very young. Wow. And there's a style in the Yiddish theater, as there was on Broadway years and years ago, which is declaiming. So everything is like not acted so much as declaimed. You know, the church bell shall not ring tonight. Uh, where the people's kind of overdue, especially when they're doing Shakespeare. And I went to see some Yiddish theater just so I could see it and get an idea of what it was. Primarily I went because people told me there was a great comedian named Menasha Skolnick. Oh, yes. The, the, uh, the Zeta. I, I the, can understand him even without knowing yeah. the language. The Zeta and the Zulu. <laughs> Man- Menachem yeah, Skolnick. Menasha Skolnick. Menasha Skolnick. Yes, Menasha Skolnick. And he, even his name is funny. So <laughs> he, they, they would call out uh, their dialogue like that? Yes, especially in a very high-flown way, like, a different theater style and evolved, oh, say, after once the method came in and once uh, Rogers and Hammerstein began to have the musicals be about something instead of about a series of songs that meant nothing to each other. There was a time in there where acting styles began to change and become more naturalistic. And even in the group theater, they're getting more naturalistic because of, because of the um, Moscow Art Theater and all that. But before that, if you go back to uh, Tony Perkins' father, was Osgood Perkins. He was a huge star. Or when John Barrymore and the Barrymores were on Broadway, acting had a kind of an acting quality yeah. about it. <laughs> John Lovitz on SNL, Master Thespian. <laughs> and, and the year... Yid- like, it was the style was to be overdone. And uh, at certain times, and Matthau says, and <laughs> Reminds me of that. He goes into a voice that kind of declaiming. Felix, it's my apartment. I make up the bedtime. And it's very uh, stylish, very stylish. The fortune stylish cookie, too. There's a lot, a lot of that acting. Yeah. Big broad. Now, now that, that was all along Second Avenue, the Yiddish yeah, theater. And earlier, the last remaining theaters around Second Avenue and I don't know, below Canal somewhere. I forget exactly where they were. No, near near uh, Houston Street. Uh, or Hudson, uh, Soho, that's uh, south of Houston. So that yeah. whole area was like Broadway. There were a lot of them originally. There was some on 14th Street, 23rd Street. As Manhattan developed, the first big, uh, what would be Times Square later, became 14th Street was like the crossroads of, of New York. Then it became 23rd Street. Then it became 34th Street. Then it became 42nd Street, and it kind of stopped. Although Lincoln Center is now above, you know, up at the 66th Street. So the center of the city kept moving up as there were more people around. I think Martin Scorsese said his father used to sneak in 
to the Yiddish theater. Really? He couldn't understand what they were saying, but he liked the music. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Now, the music no- is very much fun. It's, I don't know what you'd call it, klezmer or, or not, but it's... Uh, I'll tell you who really captured the feeling of those early kind of theaters, but in Italian, was Scorsese in... Uh, um, I don't know if it was uh, The Godfather or if it was in... Oh, in Godfather 2, they go yeah. to the... Uh, to oh, the, oh yes. yes, yes, the Coppola. Well, right. the kind of play right. he put on there, which was really very authentic looking, is sort of what the Yiddish theater looked like to me. There were little skinny sets and a small theater, and it wasn't very... It must have two people on stage or three people at one time. And it was very melodramatic in that sense. They'd come in wailing and weeping and... You know, we're always big problems. Yeah, yeah the scene in, in the Godfather movie, the guy gets a phone call that his mother's dead. Yes. And, and he <laughs> goes, yeah. I am alone in America. Right. right. Mamma mia. My wife is a tramp. <laughs> it's just amazing, isn't it? I'll tell you a thing that happened to me when I was in Three Penny Opera that would amuse you. I, uh, uh, Four of us. McKee's thieves went over to a costume house, which happened to be on Second Avenue and had been servicing the Yiddish theater for years. By now, this was 1952 or three, and so there was very little Yiddish theater, but there was this man named Mr. Gropper, G-R-O-P-P-E-R, and we went in to see him to get old-fashioned costume, period costumes for the Three Penny Opera. But his, he thought of his costumes as having integrity and... Uh, and when the uh, the gay costume designer would say, "No, that hat, that hat will never do. That's all wrong," and he would be offended by it. You turning down his costume parts? And he'd say, that's all wrong. It's old fashioned. You want old fashioned? He said, "Yeah, but that's about twenty years. That's not Victorian. It's Edwardian. It's a hat. It's a baby. It's a top hat." And he, he's trying to give them how good these costumes are, and not being able to turn away from. So I tried on a coat, uh, a Chesterfield collar and swallowtail coat, and a little ratty, because they all were. And the, and the um, costume designer dismissed me, no, no, that's all wrong. And he said, what's wrong? Maurice Schwartz wore that coat. Jacob Benami wore that coat. <laughs> I was reading the resume of the coat. That's Boris great. Konofsky wore that coat. That's great. <laughs> By the way, Morris Karnofsky, a famous Yiddish actor, was Jimmy Karen's uncle. Oh, oh I wow. love that. Karen Karnofsky. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. Wow. He, Jimmy told me he went to, went to New York. He's 16. He wanted to go to the Academy, the American Academy, for studying acting. And Karnofsky told him, no, no, don't go there. Go with Sanford Meisner. He'll teach you acting. So... Uh, but I love this guy. He gave the credits of the coach. It's brilliant. Didn't James tell us that he was that the way he became an actor? He was walking down the street in a Boy Scout uniform. And a, a, <laughs> it was a very strange story. A guy yelled, "Hey, kid, you want to be in a play?" Do you remember this? Yes. He never told me that. Story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, I, I know he grew up in Wilkes-Barre and yeah. he used to go to the Vaudeville yeah. Theater. And when he was very young, there was still Vaudeville around a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Herschel Barnard. Oh He's yes, yeah, James. Yeah. Yes, yes. We Her- we did a great episode with him. We love him. Herschel Bernardi. Herschel Bernardi. He started in Yiddish theater, and I think he said his father was like the John Barrymore. Really? Of Herschel Bernardi, later blacklisted. 
Oh yes, Herschel yes, Bernardi, and yeah. and, and he lo- played uh, he played uh, in Fiddler too. He eventually played the leader of Fiddler after Zero left. And and he was also the voice of uh, Charlie. Charlie the- yeah. yeah, hey, very good, Paul. <laughs> yeah, and, he did a lot of voiceovers. And I remember he said, and "I did a lot of voiceovers. I did a lot of commercials. I did tons and tons and tons of commercials." Tell, tell us about. I, I, I saw an interview with you and your wife. We should. We'd be remiss in pointing out, by the way, that your wife is uh, not a star in her own right. Winnie Holzman who created the show My So-Called Life, and she wrote uh, uh, the Broadway musical Wicked with Stephen Schwartz. And And she told me to say hello to Gilbert, and I'll tell you how she knows you. Oh, my God. When you were breaking in, you were very young. She was with a little group of four people who would get up and do sketches called the um, Serious Business. And she said she was in several clubs with you, and she liked you, and you were very funny, and I should say hello. Oh, that's not what that's wow. been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Was he nice to her? I haven't been... been married 30 years, so. Wow. Before that. Wow. 35 years ago, maybe. Well, yeah. then. You know, you probably met a million people in those clubs, too. Oh, definitely give her my best. Yeah. Wow. This you is... see her, but if you saw her, you'd remember her from having met her once because she's a memorable person. She has a tremendous personality. She has a personality for both of us. <laughs> yeah, she's you know, from. You're eating for two. Yeah. She's for two. And, and Winnie's from my hometown, by the way, Paul Rosalind Heights, New, oh, York, yeah? New York. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I wanted to point out that I saw an interview with the two of you, and she was talking about seeing you back in the day in a dog food commercial. Do I have that right? That's right. It was. Uh, she didn't know me yet. It was called Skippy Dog Food, and I held up the can at the end, and I'm pointing to the can of dog food. And just ad lived it as if I'm saying buy it. I just looked at it and said, woof. <laughs> <laughs> People kind of remembered it from that. <laughs> I love that. And and you had a quick scene in Death Wish with Charles yeah. Bronson. That's well, a movie we love to talk about. <laughs> and- yeah, uh, I was uh, a cop arresting some prostitutes. But then I ran in the subway and there was a guy shot. And, and I think... Uh, um, Bronson had just shot him and left. <laughs> so then I'm in the hospital later with uh, Vincent Gardenia, the detective, and he said, did you, did he say anything before he died? Uh, did you get any information? And I only had a, this, I only had a couple lines, and this was one of them. So I thought if I say it in a, fir- a certain way, maybe I'll get a smile or laugh. So I took out my little notebook. Instead of just reading it normally, I said, I shot him. I shot the motherfucker. <laughs> but if I, if I just said it straight, it wouldn't be amusing. So I shredded like I'm a kid learning to read. <laughs> and he worked two days on that. I did the out-of-towners with Jack Lemmon. Yeah, that's uh, Gilbert's wife's favorite movie. She's sitting right here. Not the second one, but the no, first. No, with Sandy yeah. Dennis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just reading a book now that she was gay, and I never knew that. Ah. I'm reading a book. My daughter is gay, and she she had a book she was reading. I looked at it, and it names celebrities from the past and now and in the future who were gay, but people didn't know about it. But back in the day, uh, when Dietrich was, they just thought she dressed funny. And uh, Garbo. And, <laughs> right. And there's a lot of them. When Barbara Stanwyck was gay and all this stuff. Yeah, they were just considered tough chicks. Yeah. That's why she always women who were kind of uh, 
self-reliant and tough, and which is what Jodie Foster is playing now. Right. Tough girls. Just so I want to ask you one question about the odd couple, too. I heard you say that you were so kind of taken with Mike Nichols' talent and, and that you, you really wanted more than anything to, to make him laugh. And then that happened when you worked for Elaine May, too. Do I have that right? That's right. I said to my analyst, I don't know why it is, but all I do want to do is be brilliant in front of one of those people or to keep up with them or make them smile or something, but it never really happened. <laughs> I said a few amusing things, but I don't remember any laughs. <laughs> now, they... I knew Elaine better because we did an off-Broadway play, but we also did it up at Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and we were we were hanging together while we rehearsed in the summer theater, and so we got to know each other a bit more. But uh, she's one of the most brilliant comedy oh, we we, we love her. She's right here in the city. We need to get her on the show. And did you ever... She doesn't like to talk to people. I know, but I saw her at the 92nd Street Y, and she was very chatty. <laughs> so, it's now, great. Yeah. It's great. I it, thought they were the king and the queen of comedy. Oh, because yeah. yeah. Because their stuff was so subtle, it wasn't over the, it wasn't over the top or anything. You know, it, it wasn't Rodney Dangerfield. Now, of course... It was great in his own right. Yeah. But I just kind of lean toward people who are minimalistic and... They just really did almost human sketches, and they were hilarious. Now, of course, uh, getting back to Death Wish for a second, Vincent Gardinia. Yeah. A great, great character actor you worked with. Do you remember anything? Actually, in in Moonlighting, or rather in, what's it called? Moonstruck. Moonstruck, Moonstruck. He's wonderful in that. And then he winds up, a little trivia, he winds up playing the father part in the TV version of Breaking Away. He played your part. Which is really odd because he's putting down the Italians. Right. <laughs> made no sense. <laughs> now, did now, uh, I, I'm only guessing that they didn't uh, approach me because I was in Malta doing Popeye. I'd like to think that. Right. <laughs> but what if it became a hit? You would have, you would have been stuck in, in a hit series. No, I already had a – when I knew it was going to be a series, I already said if they offered it to me, I'm not going to do it. Because I think since you're not going to have a bicycle race every week – uh, I didn't. I didn't thought the TV would like, you know, take away its credibility, and it has a kind of a classic quality. Mm-hmm. If you have to turn them out, uh, turn them out every week, it would get kind of thinned out. And you know, a lot of sitcoms, if they're not good, they're just boring. I love you when know? you say that dog, that cat. That's my cat. His name is Jake, not Fellini. Yeah, <laughs> my cat. Now, did, did you have any dealings with Charles Bronson? Uh, who is he? That's how I felt. <laughs> no, we weren't even we weren't even together. Oh, okay. He's running away, and again, when they finish their bit, they go to the trailer. Oh, yes. and You never see them. Now, well, we like off to the chat place. with him, but um, the people, the guy you can chat with. I worked with Gary Marshall. You can chat with him forever. Oh, yes. He's a very approachable guy. I live two blocks from his theater, the Falcon, and I live about eight blocks from where he lives. He lives next to Joe Mantegna. Can... They look out their windows and they see the old Three Stooges houses. They all lived out there in Toluca Lake. Can, can they still you... own a lot of property that Stooges did on the Riverside Drive in Toluca Lake. Can you do a Gary Marshall imitation for us? Um, well, after takes, he would just say, very good, very good. Let's do one more. <laughs> And the funniest thing was, I never I did about 60 films. I never saw a director do this. He had comedy writers behind his shoulder, and they'd be feeding him lines for scenes. 
and he would just turn and snap his fingers. Uh, give me something for this. We'll do another take in a minute. Give me something. <laughs> That's great. And it was just like doing Happy Days. That's great. In fact, he used a couple of writers who'd worked with him on Happy Days. Well, you work for some great directors, Paul. You worked with Gary, not only Gary Marshall, but Cassavetes, Arthur Hiller. Gilbert and I were talking about Robert Mulligan, George Roy Hill. You were in Slapshot. Yep. John Hughes, Peter Yates, Breaking Away, of course. And Chris Nolan. Yeah, and Chris Nolan and Christopher Guest. Yeah, I love Chris. I mean, uh, we did three of those with him. You are very, very funny in those films. You know who was in that Death Wish with me? Uh, Christopher Guest is in it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. For one minute. Yeah, who was playing one of the other hoods in, Ge- in Death Wish? Didn't we talk about this? Uh, uh, Denzel Washington. Wow. Well, uh, oh, I didn't remember that. Yeah. He appears for a second. There are three black muggers. And at the end of the line is Denzel Washington, I think, wow, I swinging a chain. At but, you Bronson. know, Chris Guest's mother was a casting director, and she cast him. She cast me also. And she was once my agent. I didn't have an agent for theater, and Alan Arkin took me to her because she was his agent. And then I signed with her. And uh, she later became a casting person, and she put Chris in the movie. That scene in Guffman where you're talking about being abducted by aliens is so wonderful. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was doing Grace Under Fire. I was a semi-regular, and Chris called me and says, uh, I want you to do this movie. Everybody in the town has been abducted by aliens. And one, <laughs> so I, I said, when do you need me? So he told me, and I said to the, the Grace Under Fire people, I said, I want, I'd like to be off uh, this two weeks. They said, no, we can't let you off. You know, I had what they call an eight out of thirteen contract. They said we don't. The scripts aren't in yet. We don't know if you'll be in it. So I couldn't do it. So I told him uh, I wasn't able to do it. And then he called me a couple of weeks later. And said, uh, "Could you fly down on Saturday and do something?" I said, "Sure, I'll do that." The part he wanted me for was the mayor, and that was the part Larry Miller played. Yep. But when I got there, all he said was, uh, "You were abducted forty years ago. That's all you need to know." And so I did a take, it was about 45 seconds, maybe 50. And he said, uh, let's do one more. I said, same or different? He said, I don't care, just as long as you're abducted. <laughs> and not only that, I'd flown down that morning because I didn't work until noon or 1. I'm done by 1.30 or 2. said, if you want to, you don't have to stay at the hotel. You can go back home. So I just down there for enough time to do those two takes. Now, the way they ended it was I have a, a tingling in my buttocks even today from remembering it. <laughs> he, was, he was probed so many times. But the way I remember ending it was more subtle, but what I said was, uh, I, first of all, I say one of them probed me, then he went out and another, and then different times, different ones. Not all together, sometimes, but not, it's a lot of them in different probings. You get the feeling this guy's really been butt-fucked quite a while. <laughs> um, so uh, at the end, I said, looking back on it now, I can't say it was a unpleasant experience. <laughs> I just thought that was a kind of funny sideways way. Very to funny. Very funny. And, and working with, with Chris Guest and, uh, and Larry David, I mean, it must be ideal for you because you love to improvise. Yeah. The scripts uh, are 12 pages long, and they're just scenes, descriptions of scenes. I talked about something I got cut out of uh, Mighty Wind was I said, uh, I'm into the environment. I, uh, I have uh, suits at home made of hemp. I'm not wearing one now. But uh, 
uh, I like natural things. I said, of course, I don't wear my hemp suit while I'm operating a heavy vehicle or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you were the you were the manager of uh, what was it the the the, the the something uh, the small town Main Street the Main singers, Street the Main yeah. Street singers yeah it's great he's the only living person who was once in it you know there's orig- all the originals are gone except him really so I went to Chris's office he said do you sing I said no do you play guitar I said no he said well I still would like you to be in it so you'll be a guy who's up there singing but you you can hold the guitar if you want and I also improvised the scene which it didn't stay in the movie trying to explain why I hold a guitar and never play it. I said, once we were doing a gig in Boston and we went out for some Italian food and I spilled spaghetti sauce on my only white shirt. I wasn't quite sure what to do and someone said, uh, well, hold a guitar in front of it. And I say, then it, it kind of caught on and I was known for it. <laughs> I was known for holding it. Not That's how it caught on. All right. But Many things are gone in the Canada thing, but I think he's a genius. Me too. Me too. I mean, what you're, an actor. Yeah, what an actor. Oh, we, you know, even his one season of Saturday Night Live, which uh, you, unfortunately you can't find. It came out on VHS, but never DVD. He did such wonderful work with uh, Shearer oh. and uh, Marty Short. And uh, Marty Short. And yeah. Billy I wish I could get Shearer. my hands on that stuff. Really good. They were great. Yep. They did uh, two guys. Two guys are the owner. I don't know if it was Chris or. It was Harry Shearer and maybe Crystal, but it was two guys who owned a uh, uh, novelty shop and they had the fake dog poop. You it's know? great. It's a great sketch. Talking about how things aren't moving, you know. Yeah, <laughs> they were hilarious. Geniuses. And that's when he did Nathan Thurm, the lawyer. You bet. Okay, uh, uh, Paul. We we have so many other things to ask you, but I gotta eventually wrap up. So yeah, because we can't do it all day. <laughs> We love so, to talk listen, to you all day. Uh, listen, I may I may call you guys if I, my show gets on the boards, and I'll come by for a visit, or I'll uh, I'll do a little phone call with you. That'd be oh, wonderful. Absolutely, that'd be wonderful. Oh, and and could you uh, do you want to plug your show now, even though you're just working on it? Not really, because I don't even yeah. decided on the name yet. Oh, okay. My wife, my wife suggested upright and personal. Because it's quite personal, and I'm still upright. <laughs> I like that. And you, and we should say too that you act with your wife sometimes. You do, do, you do some productions. Well, we did a play at the Odyssey here in L.A., and then we took it back to New Jersey to a regional theater, which we wrote the play, and we appeared in just we're just two of us playing, both playing two parts, and then we wrote a, a very very popular one act, uh, which is a parody of love letters called Post Its. It's, People's lives from when they're 25 to when they're at the end of their life, and that's all on Post-it. That's a fun idea. And there's 10 minutes, and it's it's done over 100 productions now all over the place. We get we get queries from South Korea and the Philippines and Japan, and wonder what the hell are they going to do with this? It's it's full of jokes. <laughs> well, that's we'll look forward for that. We'll look forward to it. And you don't have a title for the for the show yet, so you don't want to say that much about it. No, not really. It's just following me. Uh, it's like what you were talking about. I get interested in radio comedy. I get interested in Keaton. Right. And I went to study theater, and pretty soon I, I didn't end up being a physical comic because, except for, except for someone like Jim for uh, Bill Irwin, uh, there's not much of it going on, you know. And uh, I uh, ended up playing all kinds of parts, but I did a lot of comedy, and of course with Chris Guest and Larry and. Uh, 
Second City. So part of my career has been comedy, but I also do a lot of fairly straight acting. Sure. So the show is, whatever comes along. The show, the one man show, is really about your journey. That's right. And uh, yeah, and the influences on me, and I even explained that by the time I joined show business, even though I love Keaton, I couldn't do what he did or even try it. It was all talk all the time, and I ended up spending about fifteen years making. 90% of my money in commercials, so I had that whole thing going on, too. While I was doing The, the Odd Couple, I made four times as much in the daytime going out and doing commercials as I made on Broadway for eight shows a week because I uh, I got popular in the commercial business. You and, you and James Karen have that in common. <laughs> yeah, he sure did a lot of Yeah, he, he sure did. He did Pathmark for many you years. You bet. Oh, yes. You bet. That's, That's I always... first ever was aware of him was yeah. seeing him on Pathmark. Well, anyway, this, I'll let you guys go. Yes. We'll talk again. Oh, let me just wrap it we'll up. We'll do it again. We'll just wrap it up, this, Paul. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and the man who played Molly Ringwald's father in uh, 16 Candles, among a billion other things. And, invent- and creating Morgan Freeman's character on The Electric Company. Yes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the great Paul Dooley. Please, hold your applause. (laughs) If you like listening to comedy, try watching it on the internet. The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel called Wait For It. It's got interviews with comedians like Reggie Watts, Todd Glass... Liza Schleichinger, Schleichinger, I've been friends with her for 10 years, one of the funniest people out there, and I still have a hard time with the last name, Liza. Our very own Owen Benjamin, that's me, takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more. You don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash waitforitcomedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore, because it's here, and it's funny, and I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and three comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.